Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebrow, and welcome to the Definitive Rap Podcast. As always, we thank VinNews.com for hosting our show. Today's show is different than any we have done before. Our guest, Dr. Bernd Volschläger, whom Bela will introduce shortly, is a man of incredible moral character, strength, integrity, and, and determination. He is a man of great compassion for his fellow human being and a man filled with positivity and focus. Dr. Volschläger, who grew up as a Catholic in Bamberg, Germany, is the author of A German Life, Against All Odds, Change is Possible, which describes his struggle growing up in Germany in the shadow of his father, a highly decorated World War II tank commander and Nazi officer. His life took a big turn while watching the television coverage of the Munich Olympics in 1972. He eventually converted to Judaism, emigrated to Israel, and served in the IDF as a medical officer. I will leave the rest of the story for Dr. Volschläger to tell in his own words following Bela's introduction. Thank you, Alan. The heroes today with regard to the atrocity, the atrocities of Holocaust victims are those who were not born Jewish, but have made it their mission in life to repent the actions of the German Nazis, especially when it involves a family member. Our guest today, a hero, was part of the post-World War II generation in Germany who grew up learning about the extermination of the Jews. And all it took was finding out about the Israeli athletes who were murdered in Munich for Dr. Bernard Walschlager to intellectually ask, why the Jews? Dr. Bernard Walschlager is a board-certified family physician in private practice in Aventura, Florida. He received his medical education in Germany and Israel and completed his residency training at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida. He received additional training in addiction medicine and is a fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Walschlager also serves as a clinical assistant professor of family medicine at the University of Miami School of Medicine, the Florida International and the Florida State University College of Medicine. He's a former board member of the Florida Academy of Family Physicians and is the past president of the Dade County Medical Association and the past president of the Florida Society of Addiction Medicine. In 2012, Dr. Walschlager was honored as the FAFP Family Doctor of the Year. Dr. Walschlager, welcome to the Definitive Rap. Well, thank you very much. Whom are we talking about? I don't recognize <laughs> this guy. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, we want to hear your story in full detail, and I urge our audience to purchase your book, but so that we get a flavor of who you are and how you came to be acquainted with Jews, I understand that as a young boy, you used to assume the role as Shabbos guy for the small surviving Jewish communities in Bamberg, Frankfurt, and Munich. Please tell us about that and about your spiritual journey to right the wrong. 
Well, thanks, Bela. Uh, now that you talked, told everybody about everything, mm-hmm. uh, we can go to the questions and answers. Yeah, well, it's not so easy, I guess. <laughs> well, thank you very much for allowing me to share my life story. And uh, I want to make it in a conversation kind of style. And if uh, anything is uh, further needs to be evaluated, we can do that with questions and answer afterwards. So how did it all happen? Well, first of all, I never intended to go on a book tour or write a book or do anything commercial with my life story at all because I didn't talk about it for many, many years. Um, there is a combination of factors that probably also shame, guilt, <clears throat> and the inability to express something that others wouldn't understand anyway. Until my son Tal, he's now 32 years old, he's an attorney, I cried over it for a while, but attorneys are people too, that's a joke. Um, he <laughs> he asked me when he was 14, 15 years old, a simple question, father, who is my grandfather? Abba Mirzab Sabashili, in Hebrew. And that was actually a question that anybody can answer easily in two seconds. Well, in my case, not. Because how can I explain a nice Jewish boy with a Jewish education in a conservative school, fill in in the morning, keep uh, the whole nine yards? How can I explain to him that his father, yours truly, is Jewish, is an Israeli, and served in Israel Defense Forces? And on the other hand, my father, his grandfather, was a highly decorated, high-ranking German tank commander and Nazi National Socialist. So these worlds obviously do not reconcile. That that took some effort. And what I told my son is approximately what I'm going to tell you, uh, because over the years I got more information and I got deeper in the material that was made available for me. So every life begins with where you're born. And uh, I was born in a gorgeous city in Germany called Bamberg. I'm not making advertisement uh, announcement for the Bamberg tourism industry. They couldn't need it. But it's a thousand-year-old city, untouched by any wars, nestled between Nuremberg and Würzburg in the north of Bavaria called Franconia. And is modeled after Rome, seven hills crowned by seven churches, a massive cathedral in the center of town, a history as little you can touch, smell, and, and listen to history, nothing changed. And so as children, we were we were educated to appreciate history, naming who lived where, the only Pope buried outside Rome, buried in Bamberg, and so and so. But something as a little munchkin, about eight, nine years old, I noticed there is something not kosher, not that I used that term. Because the time frame between 1933 and 1945 was taboo, was not touched. So it was not even talked about. I knew as a child that there was a war. Why? Because there were American soldiers, about 15,000 American soldiers with family members stationed in the outskirts of Bamberg and living also in Bamberg. Uh, which had a population of 70 to 75,000, so a very significant part of the social fabric. And I figured if there are foreign soldiers in town, in that case American, and there was a war, we probably didn't win that one. So that was the only thing that I figured. So there was a war and we lost. Uh, at home, nobody talked about the war. When I mentioned and asked a question about war, it was curiosity. My father answered, uh, we're moving forward, we don't look back. And his accent indicated, and he, he didn't speak the rolling Franconian Bavarian language that, that he did, that, I, that everybody spoke. He didn't. He was a very, very conservative Hochdeutsch. He educated German from the out of Berlin area. Neither did my mother talk Franconian. So when I asked both of them, "Who is my my grandfather?" 
I, because I had none either, I was told they're gone with the war. So there was a war, shattered and broke families apart, and nobody wants to talk about it. But slowly but surely, because I was nudging, he, I heard two different stories from my father and my mother. When my father started talking, he didn't ever stop. We had long walks in the forest. He was a hunter. He told me how to handle a rifle, how to fish, just everything. We had a great relationship. And he told me the story that he was the youngest German tank commander serving in an elite unit under the umbrella of General Guderian, the father of the German Blitzkrieg. And my father's elite unit were the first to push through Poland in September 1939, in 1940 pushing towards Paris in France and Belgium and Dunkirk and Holland. And then in, the, in 1941, the fatal attack on the former Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, where my father's tanks, just two or three, pushed so far east that they reached a city in uh, close to Moscow called Orel and conquered it. And for that unbelievable accomplishment, he was awarded the Knight's Cross by a man who he personally received the Knight's Cross from a man whom he adoringly referred to as Mein Führer, my leader, Adolf Hitler. So I had no idea who Adolf Hitler was because nobody talked to me about it. I just knew my father's the knight in shining armor. And his war buddies who came to visit our house at least once a year celebrated him with a lot of drinking and ali hello, celebrated him and told me all the time, impressed upon me, your father is a hero. Arthur is our, his first name. He is a hero and you have to be proud of him. So a little munchkin, I was proud of my father, the hero. On the other hand, my mother told me a completely different story. She was an eth- born as an ethnic German, a Sudeten German in Czechoslovakia, in an area that was called the Sudetenland, in the border between Czechoslovakia and Germany, uh, where for hundreds of years ethnic Germans lived and were considered Germans, and uh, as such, due to the war, were under threat. My fa- my grandfather was a well, maternal grandfather, was a wealthy merchant, could afford to buy a beautiful villa, and this picture of the villa is the only thing that my mother and my family could rescue because they had to flee. My grandparents, maternal grandparents, died as a as, as a result of it, and my mother was got a, a gun for my father, handgun, and said, "When you flee, and you know the Russians coming close to you, shoot yourself." So it was a trauma for her, no question in my mind. And for the rest of her life, she just told us children over and over again what she lost. So these two stories: heroism, battle, honor, and then on the other side, horror and pain, and loss. But there was something unique in the house that we were living in that connected to history. We lived in this massive 19th century style patrician build, patrician style building in downtown Bamberg, which is still standing, by the way. The entire floor was occupied by the landlady, about the field, or the size of a basketball field. And uh, we lived downstairs, and my mother always told me, do not talk to the lady unless you're spoken to. She's a countess, eine Gräfin. And I said, well, then I don't. And uh, when in the hallway of our part of the building, right next to the door on the left side to our apartment and right next to the right side of the wooden stairway leading up to the uh, apartment of the landlady, the, the uh, Gräfin, was a larger-than-life picture or painting mounted on the wall depicting an officer like my father, whose pictures I saw at home. Uniform, officer's insignia, the knight's cross around his neck, officer's cap, and when I asked my father who this man was, or is, my father responded, he was a traitor, a traitor. And later I found out from the lady upstairs 
that this was a portrait of your late husband, Count Klaus von Stauffenberg, the German colonel who was leading the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler on the 20th of July 1944, which unfortunately failed. He was executed with dozens of other conspirators that were called in Germany. The same night they were all executed. His wife was uh, thrown in a concentration camp two days later. His children given up for adoption and then sent to Buchenwald for, to be gassed. And uh, due, to, due to the luck of Stauffenberg, she delivered a baby in the concentration camp Ravensbrück, protected by heroic German officers who kept their life. And the children were rescued and they moved back in the house and uh, lived there. Now they had grandchildren and whenever my, my parents didn't want me to play with upstairs or go to have any contact with her, but whenever my parents had a nickerchen, we say in German, a sleep, sleep after Sunday lunch, everybody was sleeping. I sneaked upstairs because I heard the grandchildren playing. And I remember this apartment, the size of a basketball field, was covered wall to wall with pictures of her, Nina von Stauffenberg, with her husband, Klaus von Stauffenberg. Picture of love, adoration, positive of emotions. I asked myself, how can my father be so angry about this man? And how can when two men look alike, they did something so different? I was confused. And in school, I was about 12 years old. We started to talk about the time from 1933-1945 in a sanitized version, at least in our school. In 1933, Adolf Hitler, who was elected to the German parliament, was appointed as chancellor by the previous chancellor, by the prime minister and by the Reich's president, the president of Germany, Hindenburg. He immediately turned Germany into dictatorship. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of people winded up in concentration camps when they didn't agree, that we were told. The Nazis started the Second World War. As a result, 50, 60 million died. Among them, 6 million Jews and other minorities. And then on the 8th of May, 1945, the Nazis capitulated, or Ribbentrop capitulated. Hitler killed himself before. And the Nazis disappeared as if Huns invaded and, and left. That was, of course, a bunch of horse manure. That was not the true story. But it was something to sanitize and bridge the gap. And then came in 1974, in 1972, an event that changed everything for me and for many of my German fellow compatriots. The Olympics in Munich. Now, you would ask yourself, what the Olympics in Munich was a great event. It was. Actually, we were literally educated on the in the year prior to the Olympics to appreciate what Germany has accomplished, that Germany was now a thriving country, a democracy, accepted among the nation, except East Germany. The other side was under Soviet dictatorship, communist Germany, but the West Germany was led by a chancellor. His name was Willy Brandt who was elected in 1969 to the position as prime minister. And he was different to any of his predecessors because he was not a former Nazi. He was a socialist. He escaped Germany in 1933, escaped to Norway. Then Norway was occupied. He escaped to Sweden. And from Sweden, he returned to Germany to rebuild the Social Democratic Party, was called, and was elected in 1969 on the grand landslide, mostly by young Germans, first generation. And uh, he made it a point to reconcile into a pen and to admit what Germany did. And what that's what he did in December 19, in December 19, um, that was 1970, he traveled to Poland prior to the resumption of uh, diplomatic relationships with West Germany with Poland. And in front of the Ghetto Marshal Memorial in Warsaw, he sank on his knees, bowed his head and asked for forgiveness. Bad picture of a German chancellor repenting 
asking for forgiveness went around the world. Front page newspaper. My father threw the newspaper on the breakfast table. We read it every day in the morning, but this time he slammed it on the breakfast table, yelling and screaming, look again a traitor. Now, I was a little bit confused because I was a traditional Catholic. For me as a Catholic, my mother was an Orthodox Catholic. Somebody kneeling in front of memorial, kneeling in general is a positive sign. It's something positive that we do that in church all the time. Why is my father so livid? My mother sent me to, and my, parent, my father did it, agreed to it, uh, sent me to a Catholic kindergarten, Catholic school. I was an altar boy. My mother wanted me to become a priest. It didn't work out. Well, it was never too late. And uh, she, for, because of that education, I didn't understand why my father was so, so mad. And the same chancellor, with this tremendous moral standing in the Western world, opened the Olympics on a beautiful August day to a great fanfare. And to the occasion, my parents purchased the first TV, black and white though, invited friends over, fine food, wine, beer, champagne. Everybody was joyous and laughing and clapping when the teams paraded into the stadium. And suddenly, a team paraded into the stadium, among the other teams, carrying a flag with a star inside, the Israeli team. And adults felt silent. Nobody said a word. It was the do not ask the question moment. And I said, that's weird. That's another team. It could be Sweden, Switzerland, whatever. I had no idea what that meant. But why the adults are so silent? And obviously, something happened. And the same team that's a proudly paraded into the stadium and this beautiful August day in 1972 was 10 days later attacked by a group of Palestinian terrorists belonging to an elite unit of the PLO. We know now, and it's not propaganda, that the East German Security Service, the Stasi, guided them logistically, had actually an apartment next to the apartment across the building uh, for the Israelis were housed and watched the Israelis and gave logistical support to the terrorists. The terrorists uh, butchered two Israelis on the spot. The remainder were taken hostage. And the German government, shocked that Jews were killed, on German soil, dispatched highest-ranking government members, among them the Minister of Interior, negotiating face-to-face with the terrorist leader Issa. And the German uh, forum, the German Minister of Internal Affairs, he asked them, begged them, let, ta- let take me and others as hostages, the whole government if necessary, but let the Israelis go. The Issa de- did not agree. He clearly articulated his demands that he wanted to be flown out with the Israelis uh, to a military airport outside Munich, and from there with a, with a German Boeing 707 to be flown to an Arab country of their choice to be revealed. And, in a, and Israel has to relieve 270, release 270 to 280 prisoners in from Israeli prisons, mostly Palestinian terrorists. And that should be a great fanfare and should be accomplished probably in Cairo or Tripoli. And it didn't happen the way he wanted it. Two helicopters, and I remember the, the event that happened yesterday. Two helicopters took off from the Olympic Village with the Israeli hostages and the terrorists equally divided between both helicopters. Landed behind the, the gates, the closed gates of a military airport outside Munich called Fürstenfeldbruck, and then all hell broke loose. The firefight started suddenly, lasted for over an hour. Explosions, subsequently explosions with huge fireballs that, that turned it the dark sky to, to, uh, to daylight, and then silence. And about three o'clock in the morning, a American journalist turned to the audience, exhausted, and revealed they're all gone. Simple statement, they're all gone. What happened is that the German police tried to liberate the hostages. The Israeli units on the ground, Mossad, uh, Kidon unit, special units, together with Sri Samir, the head of the Mossad, begged the Germans 
do not attack. These are elite soldiers. They need to be treated, dealt with in a completely different way. Do not shoot. Let us do it. The Germans refused and did it themselves. As a result, when Isa and his gang was surrounded, they knew that the Boeing 707 had no pilots and no staff on that if they, it was empty. They decided to end it. Isa threw a hand grenade in one helicopter where all Israelis perished alive. The other helicopter, somebody probably him too, sprayed his machine gun fire and everybody died. And the next day, these iconic pictures in all over the world and in the German newspaper, specifically in our hometown too, the picture of two helicopters, one burned out with the charred remains of the Israelis inside, the other helicopter with the bodies of the Israelis slumped over the seats, and a huge headline, Jews killed in Germany again. Now I speak perfect German even now. Again means that something happened before. And I asked my father when I came home, what happened? But what is the significance of this event? My father was yelling and screaming, diese Juden machen unser Leben wieder kaputt. These Jews destroy again our reputation, our life here in Germany. Always trouble with them. We try to keep, cut them out, but they always come back. That's their fault. So the victims as perpetrators, the perpetrators as victims. And I didn't understand it. In this, how could my father be so callous? And in school, we started to talk about it as a result of this event. We started to talk about everything. And in the absence of a Holocaust curriculum, our teachers started to talk about their lives. Some cried. They broke down in front of us. And what I heard, I never heard before. Auschwitz-Birkenau, final solution, the murder of six million, not as collateral damage of war, but six million targeted and executed by decision made by the German government. Uh, Eichmann, Mengele, the murder, Hitler. I mean, I, I was overwhelmed. And my way back home, I remember I said, my father, the war hero, he must know something. Maybe more that he can answer questions. When I came home, I said, dad, actually, I couldn't say dad. I could only call him father, the formal term for father. I could not kiss him. I could not hug him. It was forbidden. For, forbidden. So I asked him, what happened? We talked about the Holocaust in school. My father looked at me. Very co- cool and very relaxed. Holocaust? It's a lie. Your teachers are communists. Never happened. In our house, we don't talk about it either. All lies. And here I was caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, my father, whom I feared and respected to, uh, told me the story that is a lie. On the other hand, my teachers, whom I respected, told me that's, that is true. So what is, what is the truth? And I started to read as much as I could about that time, published in German, in English, in French. And I had to, I, the, what I read was, horrible. And I asked myself, I need to find out the truth. And when my father, if my father was all this, this war hero, this knight in shining armor, I want to find out from him what happened. So I know talking to him was a little problematic because he wouldn't talk about it, but he was an alcoholic. And as a child of an alcoholic parent, you gauge the first phase during the day when he was looking for a drink, he's restless, irritable, and discontent. The third phase during the day in the evening, he's drunk. And in the second phase, the twilight zone, I call it, I call it nowadays the shikar zone, he is a kind of, he talks and, and gives money and you could manipulate him. And I used that time, this specific twilight zone to ask questions. And the question I asked over the course of two or three years, over and over again. First set of questions, father, what happened? I said, well, burned whatever allegedly happened. So I already admitted that something happened. Allegedly happened. We didn't do it. The Wehrmacht. It was all the SS. Well, that was, that was, that was a lie. I found out the right, written in books, the SS and the Wehrmacht did not collaborate 
on tank tactics. They collaborated on killing kill zones. I actually found a picture 20 decades after his death. The archives were opened in the East. An historian gave me several very important documents uh, to talk about it. One of them, a picture of my father, a lieutenant colonel, sitting next to Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, the Beast, in Russia in 1941-42. When ranking German officers, tank units, met with the head of the SS, the Beast, it was about securing territory for kill zones. My father knew exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. He knew also about Auschwitz, because in the same term, my historian found a document, his denazification protocols of my father, where a letter was affixed to it, where my father, a letter, an order that my father gave to send about 600 or 700 Russian prisoners of war to a place called Birkenau for final treatment. He knew exactly what Birkenau and Auschwitz was. He knew exactly what happened. He didn't tell me that. Then came the second set of answers, the questions that I asked. So what happened with the civilians that were killed? I didn't even touch the term Auschwitz. Well, civilians that were killed, they were not civilians. They were guerrillas. They were terrorists. They didn't fight in uniform. So they, according to the Geneva Convention, they cannot enjoy any protection. We killed them. I asked him rhetorically, you tell me that a million plus children were fighting the mightiest army in the world, the ragtag survivors, Jews, Jewish victims that were guided into the crematorium, they they was attacking you? Nonsense. And then the last phase was one evening he was completely blasted. And I asked him, tell me about the Holocaust. And he looked at me and said, you, your generation, you're soft. You're not hard. You're not battle trained. What we did for you to kill all the Jews, to get, they didn't use the term killing, to clean the, the schmutz, the dreck, the dirt off, we should get a Nobel Prize, a Peace Nobel Prize, to making the world a better place to live. You guys too weak. Now that was the last straw that broke the camel's back of trust that I had with my father. I could not look up to him as a hero. I looked down to him as a common criminal. I didn't talk to him anymore, not much. And uh, I asked myself, what happened? I need to find out. And I, and I asked a former teacher of mine, a Jesuit priest, actually was at that time still my teacher, I said, what, how can, I told him the story, what can I do? I said, well, as a Catholic, you know, we need to make amends for those that were harmed, personally by us or, or, or because of us. And I said, how can I make amends to people that I don't know? I don't know Jews. I never met a Jew. The only thing I heard about Jews is that they killed Jesus. And of course, it was wrong. And he said, well, I'm belonging to the progressive wing of the Catholic Church. We're inviting from Israel Jews and Arabs uh, to come to Germany. We pay the trip and they learn from each other by vacationing and and celebrating the, the day of freedom together. And I will send you as a, I sponsor you as as, a, as my candidate to be the German representative. And so I met a young, young Jews. I was 19. They were 17, 18. That was before Google and Schmuggle. You actually had to talk to each other. And we had a good time together. And I must say, I liked the Israeli girls a heck of a lot. There was definitely not only spiritual needs that broke through. And one of the girls uh, that I touched base with her, so to say, and we liked each other, said, well, if you want to come and really want to make it serious, you have to come to Israel. I said, well, no problem. I was a good big Schwitzer. I was exaggerating. Yeah, sure. The problem is I had no passport and no money. Uh, during the two, three months following the departure, I worked in, the, in, in summer jobs, got some money, got a passport, and I traveled to Israel, not in the way that I recommended. I hitchhiked to Munich. In Munich, I took a train across the Alps to the Adriatic city of uh, Ancona, 
and from there took a ferry, uh, sleeping on deck, definitely not a cruise, wild cruise. And in Piraeus, we reprovisioned, and I sent a telex to Haifa that I will come in that in that time. And I never forget the scenery when we arrived in Haifa in the early morning. The sun was rising suddenly. They saw the mountains of the Carmel Mountains rising like out, out of the sea. People were praying and uh, Jewish Jews praying the morning prayers, tefillin. And it was a very emotional moment. And on the other hand, when we came closer to the harbor, I asked myself, Oive, if they find out that the name Volschläger, maybe somebody can identify the name Volschläger with some, somebody, something that my father did. I was afraid. On the other hand, I found her in the harbor out behind the taxes and the customs service. She embraced me and said, let's go to my parents. We took a taxi up to the Neve Shanan on the Carmel Mountain, which was a working class neighborhood at that time. And her parents literally waited for me outside. Her father took my rucksack, her mother my bag that I was carrying, chit-chatting in Yiddish with me. I had no idea what they're talking about. And leading me into an apartment, which was a tiny little apartment, one room made for me and they all lived in the other room as a guest. And in the evening, they dished every food that, that I've never ate before, hummus, chatzilim, couscous, and so on. And it was, they're chit-chatting with me in, in Yiddish and wanted to know, know more about me. And suddenly, her father looked at me and said, look, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. I said, how do you talk, speak German? How did you learn it? I didn't say a word. He looked into my eyes, pulled up the sleeve, up on his left forearm, and showed me the number tattooed. He said, ich war in Auschwitz. Ich war in anderen Lager. And I was in Auschwitz and in other camps too. I was liberated and spent three years in Germany at this place, person camp. And I had to learn, not only German, I had to learn that not all, not all Germans were monsters. But I want to know, are you, this generation, knowing everything they teach you, they make you aware of what happened? And I asked, answered him honestly, not enough. And here I was, and I was speechless because I was a young German for the first time in Israel, for the first time in the home of a Jewish family, for the first time in the home of Holocaust survivors. Her, her mother was also in a work camp. How how should I behave? And he noticed my despair and said, look, Bernd, I don't blame you, but I want to show you something. And two days later, he traveled with me to Yad Vashem in Yerushalayim, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. And he took me by his hand physically and walked me patiently to the exhibits and showed me everything. It took an hour and I broke down. Emotionally, physically, I, I was, I could not, I could not handle it. And I asked myself, how can these people, in a positive sense, these people that suffered so much by the hands of my people treat me as a guest, treat me as a human being, rebuild their lives, rebuild an old nation anew? There's something unique I want to learn about these people in a positive sense. And way back to Germany, I pondered how the question, how can I find Jews? In Germany, there were no, well, there were 25 to 28,000 Jews living in hermetically sealed off community centers in Frankfurt, Munich, and in um, Bamberg too, and Hamburg, Berlin. And why were they were so isolated and, and protected by German police that had armored police carrier in front of the every Jewish community 24 hours a day? Because it was the time of terrorism. Palestinian terrorists roamed, roamed Europe. German terrorists, Italian terrorists, French terrorists. It was a war zone. And I, in my hometown, lo and behold, I found a little Jewish community uh, that were living or having a synagogue, a tiny little synagogue within an apartment building. It was only accessible from the backyard. And they called it the Israelitische Kultusgemeinde, the Israelite cultural community, not even a Jewish community. And I knocked at the door 
of this in, when I found out where the entrance was. And an old man opened the door. It was a steel door, heavily heavily guarded. And he looked at me. It was a tiny little man. Didn't open the door. Was willst du? What do you want? And I said, well, I want to learn. I want to do I, I ramble something. I don't know what. And he let me in. I said, come in. He thought I'm a student or a project. And we walked, I remember, to a black, dark corridor. There was a dim light in the corner, red light. It was dimly lit. And he asked him, what is this? This is the eternal light. Neltamit. And what are the black graves, the black stones on the wall with all the names engraved in them? So this is the names of the Bamberg Jews. These are the names of the Bamberg Jews who never returned from Theresienstadt. They all done, done, bad, 1200. And I walked, he led me into his office. It was a hot day. Uh, it was the windows closed, curtain drawn, no fi- no air conditioning, no fan. He took off his jacket and he had very white skin and the number tattooed on his left forearm stood out. I stared at it and he looked at me and said, well, that's, that's Auschwitz. This is Auschwitz. I was in Auschwitz. As a 14 year old, I survived. My name is Itzhak Rosenberg. I'm the chair of the Jewish community. He was tough as nails. And I, uh, and I asked him, can I help you with something? Help? I, well, you can buy, a, can I give you a book? You can read it. We can talk about it. No, I read everything. I want to help. I said, you want to help what? I want to do something for you. So do something for us. Well, I know a good job. Shabbos Goy. I had no idea what Shabbos Goy or Shmoyan meant. But it's for those non-Jews listening to us. It's a non-Jew who serves in the Jewish community, an Orthodox Jewish community during the Shabbat from Friday night to Saturday night and does all the chores that an Orthodox Jew cannot do, not lighting fire, not preparing food, not carrying anything. So I was the handyman, so to say. And I said, what do you need to do? Well, I tell you on Friday, come at six o'clock. I was there at six o'clock, bull. Six thirty. Seven o'clock, seven fifteen, seven thirty. It's like strolled into the into the uh, in the place, to the building. I said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "You should be at six o'clock." Are you German? You have to unlearn that. Six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. We don't take it that tight. So learn lesson number one: don't be so German. It was this, it is wonderful humor, his cynical attitude. I loved him like a father, and uh, he showed me what to do. And he said one important thing. When the Alte Kakas, that's what he said, when the Alte Kakas coming, the old man coming, we're about 30 Holocaust survivors to celebrate the Shabbat, they ain't going to like you because you're the intruder. So just make yourself invisible. And so when I did one of my chores, I literally make myself invisible in the corner. And they were heck, hickering and pickering. What must I go with? And it's like, ah, forget about that. So I came for every Friday, every Saturday, every week, every month, every year, holidays. And I absorb like a sponge the mannerism the language the liturgy and the closer i came to this family of choice the more i separated myself from the family of origin and i came to a big boch as you call it it was conflicts all the time with my father but the point one out that was the end of the conflicts the conflict that ended all conflicts was when christmas fell on a friday night and christmas in my mother's house as a catholic was a big deal i played like a like a film in my mind we had to go to the cathedral, the Christmas mass, and we coming home. My mother served us lentil soup and the carp, which symbolic food for Catholics in Germany. Then we were waiting for the bell to ring that my father decorating the Christmas tree in the big living room. And when he rang the bell, we could go in. And my father was standing next to a Christmas tree, larger than he was, with real candles, like this dark suit and the knight's cross around his neck, singing festive Christmas hymns. And I was not there. 
Well, needless to say, when I, when I came back from the, from on Saturday evening, all hell broke loose. And I said, look, let's stop this Greek tragedy. I'm not going to sit at the same table with a man who has this bloodstained metal around his neck symbolizing murder. You are murder. You have no, you're celebrating the birth of Christ. You, how, how cynical is that? He looked at me and said, raus, get out. Well, it was a little problem. In Kesef, kind guilt, no money. I was in the second to last year in medical school and I did pretty well with the scholarship, but I still had some extra expenses. And I never took money from the community, nor what was it offered. And Itzak must have noted that something is going on with me. He, he knew me after this five years that I was already there. And he must have told others because suddenly one member of the Jewish community approached me who never, ever approached me. His name was Aaron. And Aaron, we didn't know. Nobody in the community knew what happened to him, except, like Itzak told me, that he found out on the Red Cross that it was in Auschwitz. And lost everything. And uh, Aaron looked at me, approached me, and said, "You was the Mister Goy for five years. Yeah, very perceptive. Yeah, your name is Bernd, thy name is Bernd. Yeah, hör mal zu, listen. Deine Schuhe und deine Jacke sind schmutzig. Du kaufst neue Sachen. New shoes and jacket is dirty. Buy new stuff. Gave me a hundred mark. Well, that was a lot of money, and it was not true. I was not schmutzig, dirty. And I walked to over to Itzak's apartment uh, office and said." Aaron gave me a hundred mark. Aaron gave you a hundred mark? He never gives any penny. Did you ask him for two hundred? That would be the opportunity. I said, no. I said, come on, sit down. Let me explain you something. Many of us physically survived, but not mentally. I barely survived both. I married a German woman, non-Jewish, and she built up a beautiful home of us. And she is wonderful, and I can finally found happiness. Aaron, Nada, nothing. He's a black hole. He doesn't talk to anybody. But Aaron talked to me. And I knew later why, because he was going to die soon. And he told me a story that I just want to touch upon because it's too horrible. He was a member of a surviving man of a Sonderkommando. Sonderkommando in Auschwitz, when the Jews that guided the other Jews, the victims, into the gas chamber, he said, take off your clothes. Don't forget to take the number that is identified with the clothing, the number. So keep this plastic that you've been after the shower. We can give you the right clothing. Closing the doors and then the SS food cyclone B from the top. And he told me the crying and didn't stop for banging, didn't stop for at least 20 minutes. It was a horrible, horrible death. On the other side, the Sonder Commander opened the doors, equipped with gas masks, pulling out the bodies, burning the, burning, incinerating the bodies, crushing the bones and throwing the remnants in the pits right next to the crematorium. And then for 90 days, these uh, Sonderkommando, they became food, they got food, wine, women, and then they were gassed after 90 days. The next group came in and Aaron survived. When Aaron died six months later, I was asked by, by Itzak, we need and state, we are Orthodox community, we need a Heber Kadisha burial society. We do not have enough able-bodied men. You can help us. I said, I'm not a Jew. You're one of us. This is the end of part one of our interview with Dr. Bernd Volschläger. Don't go anywhere and join us, please, for part two, which uh, concludes with Dr. Volschläger telling us the point of where he decided that now he wants to become Jewish and go through the entire process followed by a Q&A with Bela and Alan Skorsky on the definitive wrap.